name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. There's an old Welsh, Welsh fable that was told of a dog who belonged to Llywelyn, who was the great prince of Gwynedd. And or Gwynedd, I guess that's how you pronounce it, in the 13th century. And Prince Lilowin's wife passed away. He had this faithful dog, and he charged his dog with watching over his, uh, his son, his baby son, while he was going hunting. On one particular hunting trip, when he came home, Prince Lilowin uh, returned to find the cradle overturned. He couldn't find his baby anywhere, and there was his dog, his mouth covered with blood. The prince plunged his sword into the dog with the idea that the dog had killed his baby. The dog's dying yelp was answered by a child's uh, cry in the distance. And so Prince Lywelyn searched and found his, his baby son unharmed and laying near the dead body of a mighty wolf. The prince's dog had actually protected his uh, baby son as the prince had desired. And it was said that the prince was filled with such remorse after that that he never smiled again. Have you ever jumped to a wrong conclusion? I know I have. I think all of us probably have. But here's an even more poignant question. Have you ever acted on a wrong conclusion sometimes? The effects of acting on a wrong conclusion can be as devastating as the story or the fable I just told you. And they can be as devastating possibly as the story we're going to look at this morning. In our study of the, of the book of Joshua, we find that part of Israel is jumping to the wrong conclusion. And they are jumping to the wrong conclusion immediately to the point that they are massing for war and going in war against their brothers. But thankfully, they don't act on that wrong conclusion. They actually do something in between. And we're going to talk about that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to begin reading in Joshua chapter 22 with verse 1. Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he told them, you've done everything that Moses, the Lord's servant, commanded you, and have obeyed me in everything that I've commanded you. You have not uh, deserted your brothers, even once this whole time, but have carried out the requirement of the command of the Lord your God. Now that he has given your brothers rest, just as he promised them, return to your homes in your own land that Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you across the Jordan. Only be careful, or only carefully obey the command and instruction of Moses and the Lord's servant that he gave you. To love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, keep his commandments, be loyal to him, and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Joshua blessed them and sent them on their way. And they went to their homes, and Moses had given them territory to the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, but Joshua had given territory to the other half of their brothers on the west side of the Jordan. When Joshua sent them to their homes and blessed them, he said, Return to your homes with great wealth, a huge number of cattle and silver and gold and bronze, iron and large quantity of clothing. Share the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. Now Joshua commends these two and a half tribes as they return home after fighting 
on the west side of the Jordan for the rest of Israel, the other 10 tribes. He, they have fought for them for the last seven years. And so as he sends them out, he gives them all the spoils of war and he gives them this great instruction. I think it's great instruction anyway. He says, just remember this as you return to your homes on the east side of the Jordan. He said, love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, keep his commandments, be loyal to him, serve him with all your heart and all your soul. What a great challenge for all of us, isn't it? That would, be, that would be God's word for us this morning. I could probably just end right there. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his commandments. Do what he wants you to do. Now, verse 9. The Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in the land of Canaan and returned to their own land of Gilead. Verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built a large, impressive altar there by the Jordan. So on returning home, the first thing that these two and a half tribes did was to build this massive, impressive altar. Now, most Old Testament scholars believe that this Old Testament, that this altar was an exact replica of the altar that God had commanded them to build that was to reside within the tabernacle, the altar where God commanded them to offer sacrifices as a propitiation for their own sins. And uh, so most people believe that that's what they built. And uh, immediately the rest of Israel, those 10 tribes on the west side of the Jordan, when they see the altar, they jumped to a certain conclusion. Verse 11, then the Israelites heard it and heard it said, when the Israelites heard it, they said, look, the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan at the region of Jordan on the Israelite side. When the Israelites heard this, the entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh to go to war against them. So as the reports came back that they're building this altar over there, everybody jumps to this conclusion. And this conclusion makes them so angry that uh, they are willing to go to war with their brothers at the drop of a hat. And here's the conclusion they've jumped to. They've jumped to the conclusion that those two and a half tribes are rebelling against God and that they're not going to worship God the way God has commanded that they worship. That is, that, that they go to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices in the tabernacle. They believe they're setting up their own system of worship there on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, Fortunately for, uh, for all of them, they don't go to war without finding out some facts first. And so led by Peneus, the priest, an entourage of 10 leaders, one from each of the 10 tribes, goes over to the other side to find out about the altar. So verse 16, what is this, this is what they say to them right out the chute. They say, what is this treachery you have committed today against the God of Israel by turning away from the Lord and building an altar for yourself so that you are in rebellion against the Lord today. In other words, they're accusing them of being in rebellion. And then they remind them of Achan in verse 20. And they say, wasn't Achan son of Zerah uh, unfaithful regarding what was set apart for destruction, bringing wrath on the entire community of Israel? And so here we have a, we have a picture into why they're so bothered by this. They're afraid that God's not only going to judge them, but God's going to judge all of Israel because of their sin. Bringing wrath, they say, on the entire community of Israel. He was not the only one who perished because of his iniquity. So they're afraid that they're going to perish also by God's judgment against them for building this alternative place of worship uh, of God. Now, the eastern tribes, right away, they deny this 
uh, vociferously. They immediately begin to say, that's not true. You've got it all wrong. And they tell them that the reason we've built the altar is because we didn't want you to forget us. We didn't want you to one day deny that we're part of Israel. Now, before I read what they actually said, let me just remind us of what's happened. When they have come after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and now they've come back, and they're crossing over into Jordan, these three tribes asked for land on the east side of the Jordan, not the promised land. They said, hey, can we just have this land right here? And Moses said, yes, you can, but there's one stipulation, and that is that you must go over and you must fight with your brothers when they go to fight for the land. And so for the last seven years, they've been doing that. They have been fighting for the land, but now there's peace. Moses, Moses being dead, Joshua has said, it's time for you guys to go home. And they've gone home. And this is the first thing they've done. Here's what they say, verse 26. Let's take, we said, when we got over here, we said, let's take action and build an altar for ourselves, but not for burnt offering or sacrifice. In other words, not for worship. Instead, it is to be a witness between us and you and between the generations after us so that we may carry out the worship of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to our descendants, you have no share in the Lord. So here's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that in the years to come, they would be forgotten and that they would not be allowed to come over and worship at the tabernacle. And so they say, let's build this altar that's to be a reminder, a memorial between them and us that we belong to Israel, that even though we're not on that side of the Jordan, we are just as much Israel as they are. They never intended for the altar to be a place of worship. It was to be a memorial. Now, Panaeus and the team, they were really pleased, verse 31. Today we know that the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against him. And as a result, you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's power. Verse 33. The Israelites were pleased with the report when they got home and they blessed God. And they spoke no more about going to war against them to ravage the land where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. So the Reubenites and the Gadites named the altar. It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So this altar was to be a memorial. It was to be a sort of like, uh, you know, back on Mount Ebal when they built built the altar there and they wrote the words of God all in the altar. It was to be a memorial and where they could, like Micah said, they could go and read the law. Well, this was to be a memorial that reminded them of their relationship. Now, people jumping to wrong conclusions war possibly, but adverted here. Is there anything we can learn from that? Well, I think so. So what I'd like to do this morning for the next few moments is I'd like to, I'd like to observe through, I'd like you to note three observations and then I want to give you three challenging applicational lessons, if you could, if you would, from, uh, from the story. And when I was going over this this morning, I realized that even my observations have a degree of lesson about them, all right? So let's dive in. Here's my three observations from the story. Number one, how quickly our praise can turn to accusation. I mean, here are, here are family members. They're of the same family of, uh, of Jacob, right? They're, they're brothers, they're cousins of each other. And for the last seven years, these Israelites have been fighting for their brothers without going home. And in, in, in just, just in an instance, they go from praising them and loving them to turning uh, against them. You know, it's really easy for us, I think, to go from, you know, having a great relationship to turning on one another. In a short amount of time, in a short amount of time, they go from applause of these brothers to rejection of these brothers and even amassing war on the shore over something that they perceive to be so. 
And I don't mean to imply that just because somebody's been faithful to us and walked with us in faithfulness forever, for, I mean, for a long time, that they're going to do so forever. I'm not trying to imply that, but I am trying to say this. That when people have walked with you for years in faithfulness, don't turn on them on a dime. Don't turn on them in an instance. In other words, give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll say more about that as we go along. Luis Palau, who was a um, Hispanic evangelist, once said, and I quote him, in a moment of misunderstanding, we stand ready to fight with someone who has been a great blessing to us with whom we've shared joyous fellowship over the years. I tell you, folks, that's the observation that I made, that from one moment praising them and the very next moment going to war against them. I'd like to say this to us, and I guess this, is my, this would be a lesson from my observation is, let's not be like that. Let's not turn on people quickly. Here's my second observation. How truly unreliable our conclusions are when we make them just from observation. How wrong we can be when we jump to conclusions just on super th superficial things that we notice. The story that I started with illustrates that as Lywelyn kills his dog when in reality the dog has killed the wolf. And this story is about that too, very quickly jumping to conclusions, wrong conclusions against their brothers. I've said this many times in sermons, so let me remind you of it this morning. When the Bible says you're not to judge, what it simply means is this, is you are not to judge things that you are incapable of judging. You're not to judge motives and, and reasons behind what, why people do what they do. You cannot do that. On, you cannot do that, period, right? But you definitely cannot do, you can't judge people's motives on mere observation, uh, no more. And so we're not to do that. The message written by Eugene Peterson, you know, it's a paraphrase of the scriptures, but this is how he paraphrases Proverbs 25.8. And it, it's really apropos to what I'm trying to say here. He says, Proverbs 25.8, don't jump to conclusions. There may be a perfectly good explanation for what you just saw. My observation is, and, and I hope you see it as well, it's really easy to come to a wrong conclusion when you just Look at something superficially. J. Vernon McGee once quipped, he said, the only exercise some Christians get is jumping to conclusions and running others down. Your conclusion from an observation may be right. In other words, you may make an observation and it may absolutely be right. But I'm, I'm here to remind us all this morning that it can just as easily be wrong and you not know. Observation number three from the story that I, that I noted as I read this week was wrong conclusions about religious matters tend to well up great passion in us. In other words, it, you know, when we jump to a wrong conclusion about something else, you know, it doesn't necessarily rile in us anger, right? But when we jump to a conclusion, and especially if we jump to a wrong conclusion about a religious matter, it tends to create in us this vitriol or this anger. That's what you see right here. These people go, they, they take a religious symbol that they're employing in a most, a most godly design. Most likely it's designed after the altar of the tabernacle for a praiseworthy end. And it's wrongly interpreted by 10 other tribes. And in so doing, they are immediately willing to go to war about this. They start amassing for war because of this negative uh, conclusion that they've jumped to. My anecdotal observation is about this, that we are so predisposed to get angry over our observational judgments over religious things. And, and might I add, you know, politics too? 
You know, I guess, is that why we always say you can't talk about religion and politics? Because we do that. They, they just, they, they stir up in us emotional things. And, and again, I, I want to suggest to us that, and, and this is just Jimmy, I want to suggest to us that we not do that. That we somehow reserve our anger till later on instead of letting our observations rile us up to anger, especially when our observations are just based on, on circumstantial or superficial evidence as opposed to some sort of a investigation. So religious matters, political ones, they tend to uh, help us, they tend to make us angry quickly if we let them. And so let's not let them. So those are my three observations from, from the story. But here's maybe the, the, the meat part of, of this talk this morning. I want to make three applicational lessons for us from the story. And here they go. And they definitely apply to all of us today. So here we go. Here's the first one. Choose to believe the best in others until you're proven wrong. Or until they're proven wrong. And even when they're proven wrong, I would like to encourage us to love people rather than to write them off or even, or even judge them to the point of dismissal. It's so easy to believe the worst in people. You know, I guarantee you there were conversations like this amongst the 10 tribes on the west side of the Jordan. Can you believe those people on the other side of the river? They barely get home and they're already creating a, an altar to worship God in a wrong way. They're already in rebellion against God. We hear something negative about someone. We're most likely prone to what? To believe it, right? And can I tell you something else? Not, not only are we prone to believe it, but... We're way too eager to pass it on. We're way too eager to try to share it with someone else. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, we all know it well, right? In the love chapter, it says, love believes all things. Most commentators believe that what Paul means by that is this, love believes the best in people. Again, Eugene Peterson in the message trans paraphrases that, love always looks for the best so my applicational lesson for us this morning would be this. When you hear a negative report about someone, can I encourage you, urge you, to not believe the negative report, but to believe the best thing about that person. To believe, the be believe that your report that you've heard is not true. You know, if you believe a negative report, can I tell you what it does? It prejudices you in your mind against that person. So that when, when you actually have to deal with that person, that becomes a hard prejudice to overcome. It can tend to make your manner as you deal with them severe. It can make your manner condem condemnatory against them, as opposed to conciliatory and impartial. And I'll tell you something else. People sense that. So if you're already prejudiced when you go to talk with someone, people are going to sense it. So I'm urging all of us to do what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to believe the best in people, especially when I get a bad report. And the effect of that, like I said, it's an effect on you, but then your effect causes them to be defensive. It causes them to right from the beginning sense injury or sense that you have something against them from the very beginning. And I'll say more about this in just a moment, but, but the best thing you can do is seek the truth as opposed to believe, uh, believing the wrong that you've heard. But start by believing the best and heaven forbid, don't, don't pass it on. Have you ever noticed how much the Bible talks about gossip and slander, everyone? 
You know why, why James says to us, I mean, he's writing the church. He's writing those of us that follow Jesus. What, what's the hardest part of our lives to tame? You answer me. What is it? The tongue, right? And isn't that true for all of us? Look, at this is not Jimmy pointing fingers at you. This is Jimmy recognizing his own weakness in this area. But I tell you, I see it all around. It's really hard for us to control our tongues and to not share things that we hear. I don't, I don't know why. Is sharing information about others giving us power over them? Is that why we're so prone to slander and so prone to gossip? I, I don't know why it is, but I would really, really challenge us, you know, let's not pass things off. And I'm, really, I'm really off my point. My point is when you hear something about someone and it's negative, Believe the best in them. Don't believe the story. You know, don't believe the story out the chute. Believe something better. So here's my second lesson, and it ties in with the first one. They go hand in glove. Here's my second lesson to us. Pay the price of investigation. In other words, don't just buy the story. Don't, don't leap before you've looked. You know, I entitled this thing, I think, uh, this talk, like, look before you leave. And this is what I'm talking about. Before you lunge to any conclusion, investigate the facts of the story that you've heard by talking to the person or the persons involved in the story. Now, I know that, I know confrontation's not easy, and most of you have known me for years and years, and you know I'm, I don't do confrontation very well. I find it extremely hard to do, but it's something that I believe we need to do. And that's exactly what happens here. They're amassing for war, it says, but before they go to war, they send this investigatory team to find out about the altar. And so verse 13, it says, the Israelites sent Peneus, the son of Eleazar, the priest, in verse 14, and they sent 10 leaders with him, one family uh, leader from each tribe of Israel. All of them were heads of their ancestral families among the clans of Israel. And why did they send them? They sent them to find, out, to find out the truth about the story that they'd been hearing. And thankfully, they investigated and they discovered that their conclusion was wrong. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, here's, we should care about the truth. You know why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. I mean, he cares about truth. Jesus has always cared about truth. And we should not go on assumptions or speculations, but we should seek to find out what the truth is. I just challenged you to believe the best. So when you hear a bad story, instead of believing it, what you need to do is investigate it and go directly to the person and ask them specifically and clearly, hey, I heard this. Is it true? And by the way, you know, don't ask Beverly. Don't ask me. Don't ask somebody else. If you hear some story about someone in our church, you go to them personally. That's what we're supposed to do. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not sharing this morning from a, from a platform of accomplishment. I'm sharing this as a, from a platform that says, Jimmy, this is what I need to be doing. This is what you need to be doing. We need to go to people personally, not to everyone else around us. But that's what we do. We, we try to ask other people as opposed to going to the person specifically in question. I remember getting a bad report about somebody in our church family. And I practiced this. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it was true. And so I went to the person personally. All those times I did it right. I said, hey, listen, here's this story that I heard about you. Is this true? And the person owned it. They affirmed it. They confirmed that it was true. And we had a conversation from there. My point in telling you that is not to tell you that you're going to find out that the story you've heard is wrong all the time, because it's not necessarily wrong, but I'm telling you, you need to go to the person before you jump to any conclusion and find out the reality there. We owe it to one another to do that. And in this story, that's what they did. Can I talk about one of my biggest pet peeves here is 
when it comes to social media. You've heard me mention this before. But I cannot, it just is so frustrating to me. And we're, and I can't talk about anybody else. I want to just talk about us. I'm just going to talk about us as believers, right? We pass on stories that simply are not true. And so you'll, you'll share a story. Somebody will share a, short, share a story that says, Nancy Pelosi says that if her party is elected, she will lock up all pastors and close all churches. And, uh, and you assume that's true. Why you would assume that's true, I don't know. But you don't investigate and you share that. But here's my pet peeve, everyone. When I see stuff like that, I'll look it up and it's not true. And AOC didn't say this. And this other person didn't say that. And then I'll, I'll say, hey, listen, I looked that up. Here's a reference. They didn't say that. You need to remove that. You know what my biggest pet peeve is? People don't remove them. They keep those false things there. They're passing on false information. That's not even true. And they know it's not true. And I even had one person say to me, you know, but it could be true. I mean, that's just, that's what they would probably do if they could. And they, they kept that story up for that reason. Listen, folks, we should not be conveyors of what is not true. And we need to find out the truth and pass on only the truth. And when we pass it on, we're passing it on only to the person involved or persons involved, not to everyone else. Before you, before you jump to conclusions, go to the person. Say, did you say this? Did you do that? And then ask the question, why did you say that? Why did you do that? You know, because motives and reasons have an awful lot to do with in all kinds of things, right? Don't they? My father and I disagreed about a bunch of stuff theologically. I think a lot of you know that. And um, I lived in my world, and he lived in his world. And we never really talked to each other about the things that we held to. You know, it was kind of like a, you just don't talk about that. When I finally became mature enough to want to understand my father's understandings, you know, my father had developed dementia. And I remember trying to talk to him, but his mind was gone enough so that he couldn't have those, those deep conversations with me anymore. You know, don't assume you understand. Don't assume you know. Ask, investigate, and don't believe things about others without investigating. And even when people have dropped the ball, everyone, let's be like Jesus. You know, to forgive, to forgive and to help restore people, it's not a, and even people that have done really bad things, it's not a, that's, that's to our credit. That is to our credit to seek the reconciliation and the restoration of God's people when they drop the ball. Good people do bad things. Godly people do ungodly things at times. Let's listen to reconcile, listen to heal, listen to correct. I guess that's my second applicational truth. Here's my, here's my third and final one. And this is from the other perspective. When you're falsely accused, when people come to you and they've believed the worst about you, and, and, and they're, doing the, they're doing the right thing, they're coming to you, but you can tell maybe they've already believed the worst about you, okay? So I said, here, here's my first one, believe the best in people. And my second one was investigate, investigate the stories that you hear after you've heard them. Find out what reality is. But, but this one's a little bit different. When, when you're on the receiving end of being falsely accused or falsely judged, choose the path of humility in response to that. Because that's what the tribes of Gad, the tribes of the Reubenites, and the tribe of the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that's what they did. They chose the path of humility. They were the injured party, falsely accused. I mean, it wasn't like the people came and didn't believe the best, the, the, believing the best in them. They already believed the worst in them, fortunately investigated. 
But they were the injured party, falsely accused. They had the sting of injustice on them. They had been dishonored. All these 10 tribes, after all they had done for seven years, and these tribes now, in a, in a, in a, on the turn of a dime, man, they have turned against them. And yet these people, there is no reproach. You don't hear any reproach. You don't hear any recriminations. You, you don't hear, all you hear them do is state their innocence and declare their motives. And I can say something, if I can say something to us, in our redeemed, unredeemed state, apart from Jesus working in us, it's so easy to be offended. And it's so easy for us to be, you know, self-defensive, right? But here's the thing that Jesus does for us. He, he helps us not be offended and he helps us, he helps us be willing to answer without recriminations, without, without being angry at folks. He gives us the humility because he himself had that humility. Humility. You know, they could have responded, how dare those 10 tribes think this of us? Don't they know who we are? Haven't we given seven years of our lives, laid down our lives for them, many of us dying in the wars? How can they think this of us? But that's not how they respond to them at all. I want to say to you, this is how we should respond. And why do I say that? Because that's how Jesus was. Jesus was filled with humility. And though he was equal with God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and suffered even to the point of death. And the Bible says in Peter, or Peter says, that when he was reviled, he reviled not. He, he didn't, he, he acted like these guys. Even though he was falsely accused and reviled by others, he didn't, he didn't do the same thing himself. He humbled himself. Paul admonishes us. He says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 12, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Let me tell you how to do this. I'm going to give you four helps to do this very thing because I think this is so important for us to not be offended when we're falsely accused or when somebody comes to us and wants to know about something we said or something we did. Here's the first one. Choose not to be offended, everyone. You, you don't have to be offended. You can choose to not take up an offense. And I say that because the Bible says that Jesus, though he was equal with God, considered equality with God not something to be grasped. He made a choice. He decided, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm going to humble myself. And in the same way, you can humble yourself. So when people come to you, you can choose the path of humility rather than the path of self-righteousness. How dare you not think something better of me? Haven't you known me all these years? Hey, don't you know that I wouldn't do that? Why are you even bringing this accusation against me? So you, you can either be offended like that or you can choose the path of, a, uh, of humility. You can choose it. Number two, choose to try and see from the other person's perspective. What I mean by that, when somebody comes to you and they've heard a bad report or they've seen something and, and instead of gossiping about you, they go and, and they ask you about it. And I mean, I can give you an examples, but I'm not going to do that because you might think I'm talking about you. But, um, you know, they, they see something that bothers them. I don't know whether it's true or not, and, but, but they go to you and they say, yeah, I saw this, and it has the impression of this. You know, what's, what's the true story? When they do that, try to see from their perspective. What if you were in their shoes and you saw what they saw? 
Would you come to the same conclusion? Maybe that they had, maybe you would. And so when you're able to see and, and walk in their shoes for just a little bit, it's a whole lot easier to be less offended if I can see why they're coming. Number three, choose to assume a benevolent motive. A minute ago, I just asked you to believe the best in people. And now I'm going to tell you, if you're on the other side and you're on the receiving side, I ask you to do the same. Believe the best in the people coming. Believe their motives. Believe that they care about you. Believe that they're there because they value you. They value the friendship. They value you personally. Assume a benevolent motive for them coming. You know, um, I've asked us to investigate when, when we hear something or whatever. That's what I think God wants us to do. And, you know, sometimes when we investigate, we might have clumsy speech. In other words, we may not do it exactly right. We may not, we may not have, you know, we, we may say something at an ill-advised time. Or we may use ill-advised wording. You know, when you're on the end of receiving that, it's easy to be offended. I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now, believe a good motive. Assume that they care for you, regardless of how poorly they may have asked their questions or what you think their questions may have implied. Regardless of that, assume a good motive. Assume that people really care about you and they're, they're there because of that. And then the final thing, and, and then my talk is over. Choose to love truth more than being perceived as being right. Now, I tell you, I think this is a guiding principle in my life. I'd like to think it is anyway, that I care more about truth than being right. And so if I'm wrong, I want people to correct me. And so when people come to you and, and they've got, you know, they've got an issue, they've seen something, you've said something that they don't understand, that they've misconstrued maybe, and they want to find out what you meant exactly by that, you know, if you will choose to love truth and you won't be offended by them coming because you will want the truth to be known by everyone rather than just merely people perceiving you to be right. And so, and so you'll, be, you'll welcome the opportunity to make clear and to make true whatever's going on rather than, you know, I can't believe you didn't know that I was right. And so if you have that kind of perspective, you know, when people come, it's easy to choose humility. It's easy to choose humility when you're on the receiving end from somebody's investigation. So, there we have it. Let's, um, let's kind of review real quickly. My first observation, remember how quickly we can turn on others. Don't do that. Number two observation, conclusions based on mere observation can be so easily wrong. Let's not do that. Number three, wrong conclusions about religious matter can, can make us especially susceptible to anger. And so let's guard our hearts from that. Even when we think we're defending Jesus or we're defending the word of God, you know, let's not get angry about it. We don't have to get angry about it. Let God get angry about it. That's what I would say. Let him get angry about it. You let him take, take care of that. My three, my three applications for us were this. Walk away today choosing to believe the best in people always. Start there. Number two, pay the price of investigation. So if there's an issue, you, you find out. You find out. Ask the questions. And don't ask other people. Go, go to the person involved. Ask them. And finally, walk the path of humility. And you can do that by choice. Now, the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus died so that we can live again and so that we can have immortality and life in his kingdom to come. You know, as I, um, you know, after Glenn died and I was there and, you know, I was just thinking, I was thinking about Glenn, he had passed and, 
And my thoughts to Glenn were, hey, you will rise again one day and you will be with the Lord. You'll be with all of us. We will all be together in the kingdom of God because Jesus conquered death. He died for us. And that is our hope. So there was hope. But right now, I want to tell you something else. I want to tell you that the kingdom of God is now and it's in our midst. And what God desires of each of us is that we live transformed lives that we live the kingdom ethic now, that we live the kingdom of God now. Listen, the kingdom of God is not just what's coming when the realized kingdom come and Jesus comes back. He wants us to be the kingdom now in this world. He wants us us like he wanted Israel to live the kingdom life so that people around us will see us and be drawn to the kingdom and come to Jesus. That's how he wants us to live. Courtney, if I could just talk about your testimony for just one second. I, I want to say one of the things you said this, this morning just so riveted my heart. You said, I want to live my life consequently. I don't know exactly how you put it, but I want to live my life for you, for the Lord. I want to live consequentially different. And that's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. We want to live different. We want to act different. And I realize we stumble and fall. I realize that we, that we don't always act, act Christ-like. I realize that we prejudge people. I realize that we gossip. I realize that we do all these things. But listen, we should be doing them less And we should be working for transformation in our lives because Jesus has given us his spirit. What the law could not do as weak as it was through the written code. And I know it's not a a literal Bible here. It's my iPad. Uh, But what, what the word of God could not do in and of itself, God gave us his spirit to change us. So everything I've been telling us today is... God can change us and make us as a church family and as individual people. He can make us like this. We can can be like this where we are believing the best in people. We are are helping people be reconciled to one another. We are not prejudging people. We We are investigating folks with a great and kind heart so that we might help reconcile people to one another. We might reconcile the body of Christ to itself. We can be these kind of people because the Spirit of God lives within us, because we, the kingdom, is now in our midst. The king lives within our lives, and we can be different now. So, final questions. Are you a conclusion jumper? Are you a conclusion jumper? Do you jump to conclusions really easy? Do you leap first and, and then try to discover later? then if you are, you need to change. And you can change. You can be different. I can be different because of the Spirit of God within us. I don't have to live by my sinful nature. You don't have to live by that way either. You can change and you can be different. So stop judging by appearances. Stop presupposing you know the truth because somebody told you something. Be different from the world around us. Stand out, beloved. Let's be different so that people notice it. And in noticing it, they want to be like that. And this, this is a message for me. This is a message for you. We can do this. And as we do it, it'll make us personally better. It'll make all of us sweeter. It'll make our church family so Christ-like. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, um, thank you for this reminder this morning that that you want us to be like Jesus. And uh, Lord, this is one area we can be like Jesus by not judging each other, by, um, by not jumping to superficial conclusions based on just mere observation. Lord, help us to 
recommit ourselves this morning to not judge one another's motives and, and reasons and attitudes, but rather, Lord, I pray that you'll give us the grace and the courage that in kindness and love we might uh, be willing to talk to one another, to get to the bottom of things that are confusing, that we, that we may perceive wrongly or not sure how they're to be perceived. Lord, help us, to, help us to do that. And Lord, help us to remember this, that in minor things, it is to our glory to overlook an offense. So Lord, I pray that you'd give us a heart to overlook minor offenses very easily. Lord, help us to be like Jesus. Thank you, Spirit, for living within us. Thank you for giving us the grace and the power to be different, to live different. Lord, so help us, help us to do this and help me to do this. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.